Welcome to Feeling It, a podcast where we discuss TV, movies, pop culture, and whether or not we're feeling it. If this is your first time joining us, welcome to the show. And here we go. Come on, walk and talk. Alright, here we go. You guys want to hear something neat? It's showtime! Hold your ears, folks. Here we go! See what you can do now. Take your position. Alright, ladies, buckle up. Let's do this. Hold on to your butts. Seriously? Listen to me very, very carefully. Hey, it's me again. Eat him up. Enjoy. All right, let's get started, guys. Glad to have you with us. Uh, let's go around and introduce ourselves. Start with you, Sandra, but tell us who you are, and in honor of Suicide's theatrical debut, tell us of the many faces and voices who've played him, who is your favorite person to bring Batman's nemesis, Joker, to life? I'm Sandra Omstutz. I'm a social media manager in Nashville, Tennessee, and I've only ever seen two performances now that I've seen Suicide Squad, so very obviously my favorite performance is Heath Ledger. My name is Brent Bailey. I live in Chicago, and I work in tech and write about uh, faith in pop culture online, and I'm with Sandra. Uh, I've seen, yeah, I guess I've only seen probably two or three now, but uh, Heath Ledger is kind of the iconic joker for me. Gotcha. And it is super fun to be able to just look across the table and ask Lucas. <laughs> You're right here together in California. Yes, for the first time, me and Lawson. That's, that's actually not. We recorded together in, um, in Chicago. Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm Lucas Wright, a designer from the Bay Area. Um, and my favorite would have to probably be Mark Hamill from the animated series just due to the fact that he's Mark Hamill and how much of a turnaround that is. Lucas, you put a <laughs> clip of the Joker in our intro music for uh, Heath Ledger. Yes, yes, I did. Just own it. He's amazing, okay, guys? He's amazing. <laughs> Just because someone's your favorite doesn't mean someone else can't be good. <laughs> That's true. All right, and I'm Lawson Soward. I am a art director at an ad agency in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, and my favorite Joker is also the one that I grew up with, the voice of Mark Hamill. All right, so today on the podcast, we're going to start with talking through what we're feeling this week, followed by some quick news points about the past week that brought us a new Harry Potter book and a surprising Instagram update. After that, you guessed it, uh, we're diving into the vat of toxic chemicals that is the release of Suicide Squad, its (laughs) critical fallout, and how reviews affect us as consumers of media, particularly TV and film. Uh, when we're told that something is rotten or something is fresh with varying amounts of context. So, let's kick it off. Um, Let me interrupt real fast to say, a few of us have lots of thoughts about the opening ceremonies, but since we are hoping to talk about the Olympics in full next week, we decided we would shelve all of those thoughts for now and save them to just kind of like blaze through the Olympics next week. Yes. To save all your tweeted accusations of a lack of patriotism, we are saving it up. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, um, let's start it off going around with what we're feeling this week. Brent, you want to kick us off? Yeah, absolutely. So what I'm feeling this week is a novel from 2014 that is called Station Eleven. It's written by uh, Emily St. John Mandel. Um, Some people call it sci-fi, but she has actually resisted that um, just because it's very like um, it's hard sci-fi in the sense of it's all very like believable and realistic. but Station Eleven is a novel that it hops around in time, but the, the main plot takes place um, in a near future, um, a post-apocalyptic U.S., um, where some kind of world plague has wiped out most of the world's population, so the people that remain are just kind of holed up in um, like the, the shells of major cities. 
uh, and the plot follows a um, a group of performers who travel from city to city, putting on Shakespearean plays and um, and concerts. So I'm kind of at a point where I'm getting pretty burnt out on post-apocalyptic fiction or film or stories, um, and they usually yeah. have to have some kind of like really distinct hook to get me interested. And so when I heard that this was about a post-apocalyptic world, but that the story was about a group of artists who travel from place to place, um, just kind of like trying to bring some kind of life and beauty into this these really hard circumstances, I was really intrigued. Um, I'm about halfway through the book so far, and it's been really satisfying. Um, it's just like incredibly well-written, first of all. Um, it won quite a few awards, um, but I know it was nominated for the National Book Award, and then it won the Arthur C. Clarke Award. Um, so it's just like, it's phenomenally written. Um, I think this is the author's fourth novel. Um, there's a lot going on in this book. It's definitely no patch Adams. So I think the synopsis kind of suggests it's going to be full of like all these moments of like really sad, um, like destitute people, like being charmed by, um, a midsummer night's dream. And it's not that at all. Um, but there is a lot that's going on. Um, obviously, there's a big survival element. I think element. you're confusing Robin Williams' movies. Midsummer Night's Dream is very different from Patch Adams. Oh, that's right. <laughs> okay, okay. Which is the one with, like, the green goo? Oh, no, that's Flubber. Um, okay, so there is a big survival impulse um, where these people are just kind of trying to make it in really hard circumstances. Um, that kind of lends itself to a lot of loss and memory talk. Um, so in this kind of future society, like, there's no electricity, um, so a lot of people, a lot of times people are just kind of reminiscing or remembering like, what was it like when we had air conditioning or what was it like when we had social media or what was it like when you could fly across the country? Um, and within this group of performers, you've got lots of different ages represented. So some people can recall the world very well cause it, they were like 30 when the plague occurred. Some people can't remember it at all because they're too young. Um, so you just have like different kind of memories interacting. There also is, I think I mentioned a lot of time hopping. And so there are a few major plot lines that are happening, um, before this plague where you're introducing a lot of the characters and laying some groundwork for them. Um, and this, this book also just does a great job exploring the dynamics of life in, in a creative community. Um, things like the exhilaration of performing together, um, just the sheer amount of time that you spend together traveling and rehearsing and performing and the ways that that can lead to like really close friendships, but also a lot of irritation and frustration. Um, and in many cases, like really complicated, confusing sexual relationships. So, you know, a lot of these characters have slept with each other or have been involved with each other. And that just leads to some, um, sometimes some like burning resentment. Um, you know, I was never, I was only in theater for like a year in middle school, but I was in uh, marching band all through high school. And for the fall marching band, you are, you are hanging out with your band friends, like almost 24 seven. If you're not rehearsing, then you're traveling to a football game or whatever you're doing. So even like f from that chapter of my life, I, I can identify with a lot of the kind of dynamics of this community life together. So, yeah, this is just a really interesting book. Um, it's already had some really powerful moments. Like I said, I'm about halfway through, um, but I would highly recommend it um, if you're looking for some kind of um, some kind of literature that acknowledges the um, kind of the darkness of our world, but also like believes a lot in beauty and, and kind of reinvigorating beauty. That sounds awesome. Yeah, it's definitely something I'll have to check out. Um, if you had to see a movie version of it, would you? Uh, yeah, uh, so when we were talking kind of before the show, I was mentioning, like, I'm sure that it's already been turned into a film, um, and it looks like there is a film adaptation in production, but there's not uh, much information about it online. 
but this story lends itself, I think, really well to the screen. Um, I can see it being tonally similar um, to something like The Road, um, where um, mm-hmm. you have obviously this post-apocalyptic landscape, but it's really more about kind of the um, the relationship dynamics um, and just kind of like the universal human themes of existence and survival. So the way that studio funding works now, do you see them adapting it to make it fit into the DC universe or the Marvel universe? <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere in between, it'll be a dark horse. Oh, nice. Uh, that's awesome. Well, cool. thanks, Brent. That sounds like a really great book. It's always great to hear some literary recommendations in our sea of uh, music and movies. So always appreciate that. Thank you very much, Brent. Um, Sandra, you want to go next? Sure thing. So the past week, I have been feeling a documentary called Tickled. Um, I got to see Tickled at our local independent movie theater, which just reopened after being closed for renovation since Christmas. So I was really excited to have this theater back in my life. And I was also excited because it opened back up just in time for um, this documentary to be released. It's been released in several cities throughout the summer. um, And we've been waiting in Nashville for it to come here for, for our independent theater to open up. So... I don't believe any of y'all have seen Tickled. Is that correct? Correct. No, I really wanted to. Okay. Um, did any of y'all see Catfish? Yep. Yep. No, I did not. It was kind of one of those where by the time I was really interested and was like, it was available to me, I had heard so many people talk about it and spoil everything about it that I just kind of lost interest. Sure, sure. What's amazing about Catfish to me is I went, I, th- I don't think I saw it until it had been out for like seven years and no one had ever spoiled it. Oh, wow. <laughs> like nice. every Harry Potter book got ruined for me before I finished reading the book, but Catfish made it. <laughs> I was up with that. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Sandra. No problem. Well, Tickled reminds me a lot of Catfish in that it is a documentary about an anonymous online identity that ends up being very creepy and scary. Um, I'm going to read Rotten Tomatoes' little movie bio about it to give you an idea of what this movie is about. Um, After stumbling upon a bizarre, competitive, endurance-tickling video online wherein young men are paid to be tied up and tickled, reporter David Ferrier reaches out to request a story from the company, but the reply he receives is shocking. The sender mocks Ferrier's sexual orientation and threatens extreme legal action should he dig any deeper. So, like any good journalist confronted by a bully, he does just the opposite. He travels to the hidden tickling facilities in Los Angeles and uncovers a vast empire known for harassing and harming the lives of those who protest their involvement in these films. So, I highly recommend that y'all go and watch the trailer for this movie because the trailer does such a good job of setting the tone for how weird and scary this story actually is. Um, Lawson, I remember showing you the trailer at my house with a group of friends, and it had quite a reaction. It almost is comical how intense this trailer is. Um, (laughs) The group of friends that watched it with me almost thought it was a parody, Um, but it certainly isn't. I... Seeing this film, 
I was on the edge of my seat the entire time. There were several moments when I was grabbing the person next to me, just very scared about what could happen next. Um, it's about this journalist who, um, he normally tells the st these stories of like very offbeat characters or weird subcultures. And so he thinks that this is like the perfect subject for his new story. But when he receives a message from the company who hosts these tickling videos that's like very homophobic and threatens legal action, he immediately knows that something's up. And yeah, as I don't want to spoil what he discovers, but it's definitely this very dark, vicious world. Um, where people are being, who, their lives are being ruined by whoever is hosting these tickling videos. Um, it was really fascinating. I, one thing I definitely want to praise this documentary for is um, having the person who is crafting this film and the journalist who's investigating it, because it is being hosted by a gay person, I feel like the film has a really great balance of exploring a subculture um, that if any other filmmaker had made this, I think it could be inherently very homophobic. Just obviously they're exploring something that is not a mainstream subculture, a mainstream like video production. It's definitely a fetishized act. Um, it's all these just like young 20 something athletic men tickling each other. But because like the reporter is gay, his research of it is he's researching the abuse that's happening and not just like looking at the videos that are being made as a disgusting act, um, which I think in any other filmmaker would have taken on the subject that tone could have seeped through. Um, it was, sure. yeah, it was very, well made, um, just surprisingly well made. One of the things about Catfish that is charming but also frustrating is that it's very novice filmmakers. Um, and it, they do some creative ways in Catfish to like make it a feature length film, but this is obviously made by people who know what they're doing. It's tightly edited, great soundtrack, great cinematography. Um, I think it's leaving a lot of theaters right now because it's been coming up in big cities throughout the summer, but I'm really excited for this documentary to like get online and get a larger following. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to because I think I lost my window for being able to see it at Belcourt, which is a, a big bummer, but I'm very excited for it to come out on Netflix or, you know, pay-per-view or whatever it is um, on demand that so I can catch up on it because I like even when you're talking about it just now and you're like not to give anything away part of me wanted to be like just give it away I just want to know <laughs> um, but uh, I'm yeah I'm excited to see it fully executed by somebody who knew how to do it in a very well done fashion um, and I'm glad to hear that the people doing it are extremely capable it really seemed that way from the trailer, even though it got so intense <laughs> we're gonna you know we're gonna be yeah. talking about buzz later and just how that affects our like our expectations for a film but this is one of those films where similar to catfish any like anybody i know who's seen it all they can basically say is like i can't process any of it with you until you see it and you know the whole story because it's just so like mind-boggling and uh i don't know where to start and so if nothing else that's got me really intrigued yeah me too awesome well thank you so much for that recommendation sandra um we're looking forward to that becoming available to a wider audience and uh yeah you've definitely got all of us uh 
I was going to make a I knew you were better of it. <laughs> yeah. so, all right, let's just move right on along to Lucas. Lucas, what are you feeling this week? All right, guys, I saw Star Trek Beyond this week, finally. <laughs> oh, man. I know. Um, no, after, I mean, th- this, this movie didn't really get promoted all that much. I feel like this is a, a Star Trek movie that they were f- trying to sweep under the rug. After the commercial and, I think, critical success of the first Star Trek movie and then the absolute bomb of uh, Star Trek Into Darkness, I feel like they didn't really n- know what to do with this movie. And I feel like... I was nervous about it because they didn't promote it. And before the movie even came out, they were already talking about Star Trek four and like what's going to happen there. And so I just felt like they were just trying to hurry up and get past this one to get on to, to the next one. But, um, I, I really liked it. I had a ton of fun with it. Um, I feel like this is the first Star Trek. This is the first Star Trek that is directed by someone who likes Star Trek. Um, (laughs) um, they got, they got Justin Lin from the Fast and Furious movies who, um, is a really big Star Trek fan. Um, and I, I felt like the other two, J.J. Abrams did a great job of um, kind of building this universe and making it, making them really good action movies. But uh, Star Trek is an adventure TV show and having it be an adventure movie was a ton of fun. And it, it, it actually, I've, I tweeted this, but it, it made me want to like be a Star Trek fan. It made me want to get into like the Star Trek TV shows and stuff like that. Um, I... Basically, all the Star Trek I've seen is the J.J. Abrams stuff. I've watched a couple episodes from um, Next Generation and I, I think a couple episodes from the original series, but that's really it. Um, but yeah, I want to I wanna like watch Star Trek stuff now, which I think is the best thing you can do from coming out of a Star Trek movie. <laughs> I'm but, a studio yeah. executive. I love hearing you say that. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. So it was, it, was, it was so much fun, and I think the characters did did a did a lot to kind of move their characters forward it was really sad seeing um anton yelchin in this um for what little screen time he had i just felt like it was every 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 time he was on screen he did a fantastic job and it was so sad to see his his last checkoff performance but yeah do y'all do any of y'all know was this his last thing that he filmed or do we have more no, no. we've got we've got like four more movies from him coming okay out soon, which is really yeah, good really great yeah. yeah but uh uh, yeah, it, this is just his last Star Trek thing. So right, okay. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm glad that you went and saw this, Lucas, because it feels like something that someone listeners might have thought like, well, that's kind of an omission. Star Trek's a big pop culture thing for uh, for this summer. Yeah, I know it's one we didn't want to actually like do a full review episode on, but I, I it was definitely one I wanted to see and was interested in kind of seeing where this story went. So I would highly recommend going and seeing it if you have a chance. Yeah, it looks like a really fun time. Yeah, it's something that I definitely plan on seeing at some point because I do really love Justin Lin, and I'm excited to see his take on this versus, yeah, just J.J. Abrams, who I do love, but we see a lot of his work, and so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I feel like all we get from Justin Lin is the Fast and Furious stuff, <laughs> and they don't really let him do anything else, so it's fun to see this. Awesome. Well, thank you for that recommendation, Lucas. I know with complete certainty that I will actually see this. It's not one of those polite times where I'm like, oh, I'll have to check that out. <laughs> um, cool. Well, uh, as for me, I'm very upset that what I'm feeling this week is not Frank Ocean's new album, Boys Don't Cry. Oh, true. Uh, I spent all of yesterday, sorry, if I start talking about it, I will be a crying boy. So I'm going to skip past it, but that was, it was just like too much emotional abuse to handle. Um, so what <laughs> I am feeling this week 
um, is the Trek-to-video animated feature Batman the Killing Joke. Um, so this movie came out, it was one of the movies that DC does often, DC and Marvel both do this, where they'll release um, animated movies in the tradition of the Saturday morning animated cartoon shows, the 90s, um, that have just kind of continued and now, whatever they want to tell, a story, a feature-length story without it being a huge big budget thing, or... Um, want to be a continuation of a particularly compelling animated series arc, um, they'll release one of these direct-to-video movies. And uh, the reason I was fascinated by this mo this one in particular is because uh, The Killing Joke is a really, really formative uh, story arc in Batman's mythology. Um, it came out at the tail end of the 80s. It was a very dark turn um, for the comics and was very... Uh, it informed a lot of people now who are, you know, making what is Batman's canon. Um, it informed their perceptions of Batman and the Joker of that universe. And it's really, um, the biggest thing it's known for is trying to tell the definitive origin story of the Joker. Um, I agree with you guys, everyone who's uh, talking about Heath Ledger doing such an amazing job as the Joker. And one of the things that's most sinister and uh, and compelling about that Joker is the different origin stories that he tells throughout. Um, so you're just kind of like, what is this psycho? Like this, I can't imagine the horrors from which this person has emerged. Um, but it's also interesting, I think, to see someone really uh, put the effort in to make a definitive origin for this character who is such a. Uh, you know, it, it's like the the nemesis of Batman, one of the world's most popular superheroes. So, um, it was a really good experience. I uh, saw this actually at a Fathom event with one of my best friends in Nashville. And uh, so they did like a two-night-only screening of the film. Um, so the very next day it was available on iTunes or you could buy it on Blu-ray or all that thing. It's one of those commemorative things where if you go to Target you can see like buy the Blu-ray along with this action figure and this limited time comic book and it's just <laughs> okay um, but uh, the amount that I did buy into it um, and decided to pay the full admission fee to go to a movie screening of it rather than uh, just renting it at home the next day uh, was a decision I really felt good about um, the crowd for uh, paying full admission for an animated movie was uh, really interesting, but <laughs> I, I too was there, so I'm in no place to judge. Um, I did like that there were no kids there. It was an R-rated animated film. Um, it's a very dark film, um, and the audience was very, like, uh, up for what it was. My uh, biggest hail for this film is uh, Mark Hamill's performance, he said that he was never going to voice the Joker again, and he came back for this because it's such a big um, story for the Joker, um, and they really, really wanted him to do it because he's so good at it. Um, and he did. He did a great job, uh, and I think they did a really good job of translating the story from book to screen. Uh, one thing I will uh, gripe about is they added a B-plot, kind of a prologue, um, that was an attempt to, uh, a proclaimed attempt to give Batgirl more of a backstory to make her a larger character, um, but really did it in, like, the worst way possible. Um, the kind of fans that, 
you would, I, I, if you guys are familiar with the term fan service, I think that a still from that prologue will probably be next to the term fan service later on in some, uh, like, explanation. It was just, it was very, like, every animated shot, and it felt weird because it's like a cartoon, but, like, every shot of that girl was, like, a, a textbook example of the male gaze, and um, the storyline that they gave her was not complimentary or um, empowering at all. Um, I just really could have done without it. It gave, um, there is a development in the plot where, um, slight spoiler, something happens to Batgirl that really, um, pushes Batman to a new level. And so having this initial prologue does give that moment a little bit more punch, but overall it was just really frustrating. There's a very, um, very stereotypical gay character that is one of her, uh, best friends at the library where she works and just like most things about the way it was put together felt like oh guys you should not have given that a shot like, <laughs> I, I can hope that you had good intentions in trying to do this but it just it did not come together um so when you cut out that plot it leaves about half an hour so it's basically just a really good episode of batman the animated series where there's really dark overtones it doesn't shy away from making the Joker really sadistic and crazy um, and makes for a really compelling story and does a great job of telling Joker's origin story. Um, but if you are going to go see this, I would almost recommend skipping the first, like, 26 minutes of this, <laughs> like, 70-minute movie. But, uh, yeah, great time. I really enjoyed it. I was glad that I spent the money to see it in a theater. Um, and if you were a fan of the Batman animated series, I would say definitely check it out. Maybe not if might be as much uh, highly of a recommendation if you did not enjoy or watch that show that show growing up but if you did I think it's definitely worth um, your iTunes dollars well, Lawson thanks for barely recommending that um, <laughs> where, where can we find it since it was a Fathom event where is it available just on iTunes or is it um, it's really only for me so only. <laughs> it was just mine yeah. and I wanted you all to know that I liked it about half um, <laughs> no I really let me reemphasize the second half I really liked the comic book that it's based off of is fantastic so read the book see the movie uh, you can get it off iTunes I think it might also be on Amazon um, but I know for sure that you can get it off the iTunes store or buy it in stores on Blu-ray So to quote Wizardpedia, which I do mean as a lame pun between Wikipedia, uh, the rehearsal script... Oh, I just assumed Wizardpedia the... was an actual Harry Potter Yeah, movie. I completely assumed uh, okay. it was a real thing. Okay. It probably is. <laughs> yeah, it probably is. But this was just Wikipedia and me <laughs> um, making a joke way too early in the morning when we were recording this. <laughs> but uh, so the newest release on uh, paper has been uh, the rehearsal script as opposed to the novelization of the play, um, which was released on July 31st and became the eighth story set in Harry Potter, the Harry Potter universe. The story is set 19 years after the events of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows and follows Harry Potter, now a Ministry of Magic employee, and his younger son, Albus Severus Potter. 
So, since none of us live where we could go see this play where that everyone's uh, been talking about, what have been your impressions with the book? Well, first of all, let's say who has the book in their possession or who has started reading it. Good call. I do not have it, and I have not started reading it. Uh, no, I have not read it at all. Uh, I have not purchased it yet either. Um, but Lucas, I believe you've gotten started on it, correct? Yeah, so I'm I'm almost done with it. Um, it's I mean I I want to here's where here's where I want to start this off. This is not the eighth Harry Potter book. This was not written um, by J.K. Rowling. No. This is this is a script that was made for made for the stage written by somebody else that she approved that has now been published i refer to this as like like corporate sanctioned fan fiction uh, agreed agreed yeah that's what it seems like yeah yeah and that's that's what i think a lot of people are confused about is i mean her name's all over this thing but this is not written by her this is yeah corporate sanctioned fan fiction is kind of how i view which isn't a dig Um, i you know no, not at all. But not at all. Just to no, be no. like more accurate about what it actually is. Yeah, when when you're consuming it, you have to consume it in that light as opposed to, because <laughs> um, if you get this thing thinking this is going to be the eighth Harry Potter book, you are going to be sorely disappointed. And, and there have been lots of people <laughs> um, that have been very like confused about that and gone to the internet being like, "What? I didn't know this was a script." <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. So yeah, yeah. This is this is the script. There is um, stage direction written in here. Like you, you are getting a script. Um, oh wow! Yeah, and like it's so it's it, it's it's good. It's a ton of fun to read. It's a ton of fun to to read a new story in the wizarding world. Um, and I think that's what people are craving, and that's what people are gonna get. Um, but again, if to me it's fan fiction, so I'm taking it just with a grain of salt. It's not changing my perspective on any of the other books that have happened. Um, it is set in the future, and there is, I mean, they obviously they talk about the past a lot. Um, and so it definitely doesn't change my view of anything that happened in any of the other um, kind of any of the other books that, that, that were actually published uh, by J.K. Rowling. But I, I, I really like it. I think it's a ton of fun. I think there's a lot of good character development here. I think... Um, they they introduce they introduce new characters and I think they dive into different sections of of Hogwarts and the Wizarding World that has haven't been explored before too much. Oh, cool! Um, which I think is, I think is fun. But, yeah, uh, Lucas, I haven't read this, but I did when the play mm-hmm. came out. Um, I read a plot summary that kind of like went yeah. through everything that yeah, happened. Yeah, they released a, pl- a plot summary for press. Yeah. Right, and um, I remember reading that and just thinking like, "Oh, this shit is bonkers!" Like, I am. Not... Oh yeah. <laughs> and oh yeah. I, I didn't. I wasn't very interested in it. Um, but then recently, people who have been reading the book have pointed out. You know, the original books are also pretty bonkers. Like, if you just read, if if you're unfamiliar with the yes. characters and you just read <laughs> plot summaries of the books, they probably sound like I, a mess. I 100% agree. I, I also read the plot, plot description when it came out, and I was in no way interested um, in reading this thing. Um, but I did anyway. Uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. When, when you're in context, when you're with the characters, when you're in the wizarding world, it all makes sense. If you're reading a plot description about you know, something that happens to these people, it sounds ridiculous because yeah. it's, it's Harry, it's Harry Potter. So, um, but yeah, it, it, a lot of it makes a ton of sense in context. <laughs> um, and I would, I would definitely, definitely, definitely look into it. Yeah. It's one of those things that really snuck up on me and hearing that 
it is a script and does have stage direction and all of uh, the ways that we're describing it as, you know, corporate sanctioned fan fiction makes me feel better about it because I, uh, some friends of mine that are like, you know, in like tweens, like 12 year old were stayed up late. Just to be to clear, work. you have 12 year old friends? Yeah. Okay. You can, you can My continue. Wife and I volunteer with a youth group. They're, <laughs> they're our real friends. You're good. You're good. Okay. <laughs> they're way better at Pokemon Go than us. It's fine. <laughs> um, so, uh, but they were like, we saw them uh, the morning after it came out, and they were like, "Yeah, I stayed up so late last night out and get the book." And I was like, "Oh my gosh!" Like for these kids, this is the eighth Harry Potter. But like that's the way that they viewed it. And I thought maybe I have missed this, and it made me feel very old and out of touch to be like oh a whole new harry potter book came out and i just like am hearing about it for the first time from you the next day like, <laughs> how was i not wrapped into the hype of this um like a warm invisibility cloak like this is usually my total thing um but knowing that it's more of like a script that they released so that more people could have access to it as opposed to it being a full novelization and a full like um, J.K. Rowling's incredible prose and um, style being throughout the whole thing it makes me feel a lot better and a lot more um, less, a lot less frantic about having to like, oh, I have to read this, I have to consume it right now. Like, I'm definitely still interested, and I think I probably will still read it. But um, it's it's nice to for there to be another Harry Potter story without it being like this insisted upon J.K. Rowling written new tale. Yeah. Yeah, I think I know we've already said this, but I can't stress enough how important I think it is to go into this reading experience <sighs> with the idea that this is fan fiction. Um, I think it like I think it sets you up for a better experience if you like really keep that in mind. Um, like here, Lawson, hearing you talk about twelve-year-olds that are like so excited about this like new Harry Potter story. Um, makes me feel like this old bitter person because I'm like, it's not the real thing. You gotta like don't 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 think it's the real thing, you know? And so now now you're one of those Ghostbusters. Exactly. Bros. And so but I do hope that like I'm hoping that people who are young that are reading this have been so embroiled in like a world of fan fiction that they're going into this with the right mindset or like what I deem to be the right mindset, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. I've read plenty of Harry Potter fan fiction in my day. And so, yeah, this is me excited as like, oh, you know, there's always like good fan fiction and bad fan fiction. Um, and mm -hmm. the good stuff is really, really good and really exciting. And so I'm hoping to like step for put my foot into this as like an area of just really good fan fiction, fan fiction that's so good. J.K. Rowling um, approves of it. Yeah. Do you guys think there will be more or fewer sex scenes than normal? Fan <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it probably a lot fewer. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I would say this like re reading it makes me want to see the play. Sure. Like it's not oh, like, like as a standalone thing, awesome. But the, the like the more I read about it, the more I was like, oh my gosh, I just I really want to just go see this. Like this, there's so many crazy things that you can do with with magic. Kind of you know in in, in your mind you can imagine it happening, but like as you're reading it, trying to figure out how they do this stuff on a stage. Oh, yeah. Um, 
is just incredible. And I can't, I, I really, really, really want to see it. So Lucas. <laughs> so I never even thought about that. Like in the movie form, yeah. they have special effects. Right. Yeah. It would involve so much technical savvy. Yeah. That sounds, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, I really yeah. See it. <laughs> like flying in a broomstick, like that kind of stuff. That's just like the basic stuff, but like casting spells and that kind of thing. And like, yeah, like this is Harry Potter. So it's gotta be, <laughs> it's gotta be intense. So I, I cannot wait to see kind of what happens here. Totally. Sorry. I cut you off. Th- Sandra. That's okay. Lucas. So I think you tweeted about how the best way to experience this book is like read aloud because it is a script. Um, Absolutely. So did you just kind of read it out loud to yourself? Did you have friends that joined you in and reading it out loud? What was your experience like? Oh, I totally read it to myself out loud. That's <laughs> great. No, I, yeah. Oh, I, I started it off reading it like a book and just the whole time I read it, I kept wanting to slow it down and, you know, hear the voices and like hear the interaction because it's not a book. Like you, it is like you, you have the back and forth dialogue and that's about it for um you know kind of hearing what's in these characters minds and stuff like that um and so that's that kind of is what my mind wanted to do was like slow down the reading process and just say all of these things aloud and i i think it'd be i think it'd be absolutely phenomenal to get just a group of people together um just to read through it i think i think that is the best way that you can experience this without actually going and seeing the play yeah that sounds like a great idea and something that i would also be very interested in like setting up with a group of friends um my personal rule i know lucas you may disagree with me on this is that no british accents would be allowed my british accent is phenomenal so (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well i yeah we have uh in nashville before we've done a roundtable reading of the hobbit and that wasn't even made to be a play. So I think that <laughs> something like this would be so fun. Yeah, definitely. So if you get a chance, read the book. And if you get a chance, read it with friends aloud as a play. Official Feeling It podcast recommendation. <laughs> Signed, sealed, delivered. Uh, yep. All right. And our second piece of news today uh, quickly is uh, Instagram. Um, a piece of social media that influences how we view the world and how we take things in, keeping in our theme of keeping tech and apps part of our culture analysis. Um, Instagram has released a stories feature, um, which kind of feels like a rip on uh, Snapchat. Um, That was its first uh, kind of impression that it sent across the internet anyway. Um, People were calling it Snapstagram. And uh, kind of really, some people felt like it was a ripoff. Some people felt like they were really into it. Um, so what did you guys think? I mean, did you guys all update your app? Did you check it out? Are you seeing people post on their stories? What's what's your impression? Well, I actually don't use Instagram very much anymore. I, of course, like still have it. Um, and I have post notifications turned on for like a few people that I really care about and want to see their photos. But as, but generally I don't spend much time in the app. I find it kind of boring now, um, cluttered. And so this didn't really affect me very much because I don't use Instagram on a regular basis and I don't continue to, at least in the near future. I I don't intend to, at least in the near future. I think there's probably a lot of people saying exactly what you just said, Sandra. That's I, probably why this came around. Yeah, I, th- I, I totally think that's why this is happening is because most people don't spend a lot of time in the app, like especially with the new algorithm that Instagram is using um, with, you know, all your feed not being in the, the correct order as it should. Um, I just feel like people aren't spending time there. Like people might 
get in and post something, but it is kind of a hassle and it's kind of cluttered to actually like go through and look at your feed and people are moving to other social platforms like Snapchat. And so Instagram's idea was just to in, incorporate Snapchat into Instagram, <laughs> which not only clutters it more, but puts a, I don't know. I like, I, I feel like they're different social media is for different expressions and you can't kind of merge those. And that, that's kind of what right. happened with Facebook and that's why nobody likes Facebook anymore. Um, and they're kind of doing the same thing with Instagram. Like I, I, I use Instagram for a specific thing. I use Snapchat for a specific thing. I use Twitter for a specific thing. And the reason I like those each as their separate thing is because they are so focused and so, you know, specific, I can get in and get out and get, get what I want done. Um, as opposed to coming to one platform for any type of <laughs> interaction. So. Absolutely. I did like go into the app just to kind of like see what it was like. And I did read someone's opinion that I, I do kind of agree with is that when you compare the way Snapchat stories are designed versus the way Instagram stories are, you know, the UI is designed. Mm -hmm. I do think that Instagram stories is better designed. A hundred percent. Yeah. The, you know, when it's easier to tell when you're switching from one store, one person's story to the next, you can go backwards yep. in Instagram stories, which you can't do in Snapchat. Um, so I, I do think it's better designed in certain ways, but Snapchat has just become so much more inherent for me. It has a lot more functionality as far as like creativity that Instagram just doesn't have. Um, and it has, yeah, a community and a history built that Instagram doesn't have yet. Um, yep, Instagram yeah. has, had a history of taking of doing things that other social platforms have done and making it something that they do and then becoming the winner. It did it with Vine. Yes. It did it with reminds me so much. Yeah, of Vine. the original you know Hipstamatic versus Instagram was like kind of the original um, like VHS mm -hmm. versus like what was it Betamax or Beta Tape? Yeah. yeah, and so yeah. it has this history of just copying its competitors and becoming the winner. And I don't know if it's going to succeed in this bout. Well, honestly, I don't know if it's like, I, I hear what you're saying, but I also was so reminded us, especially of the vine comparison, whenever this happened, because I feel like vine is still a very vibrant community, just a very different community than what you would play in Instagram videos. Like I still think that most you know, comedians and Vine celebrities and, like, really interesting content creators are on Vine making seven-second loops instead of the people on Instagram who are filming 15 and I, maybe now you can even do 30 seconds of video of just, like, you know, picturesque things happening in front of them. Um, so I think that the communities that are there really inform the content, and so they very much have their own thing. And I think that's probably going to be the same way for... Uh, Instagram and uh, Snapchat because I see Snapchat being this younger, goofier, um, more spontaneous type of thing. Whereas Instagram so far, some of the most interesting applications I've seen of this stories thing um, has been through brands. And maybe it's because I work at an ad agency and I'm always thinking about like social media advertising. But um, I love the idea of a brand being able to post content that's part of their feed that's very curated, very well produced, but then have posts throughout the day, especially if there's like an ongoing event 
or if they're, you know, shooting some of the great social media content and being able to give like a, a behind the scenes look of stuff going on. I feel like it gives people extra incentive to follow a brand um, on Instagram. But as far as it being like taking the reins away from Snapchat, I think, like you said, the community of Snapchat, the uh, the vibe of Snapchat is so fun and people enjoy it so much and enjoy kind of the, uh, the youthful essence of it. Um, which is something that Instagram has lost a little bit that I think, I think Snapchat's going to be just fine. Well, I'm, I'm sure nobody will be surprised to hear me say that, um, I was really grumpy when I saw the new update, both because like, I just hate change <laughs> no and way. I hate change in my apps also because <laughs> I've like, what started as just not being interested in Snapchat quickly became like, now I'm actively resisting anybody who wants me to get on Snapchat. So when I saw that Instagram was like becoming <laughs> Snapchat, at first I was really annoyed. Um, but then now, like two days later, the if you don't care about the stories um, and don't want to see them, like they're mostly non-intrusive. So it's really easy to just kind of ignore them and it doesn't like really dramatically affect the Instagram experience. So at first I was like That's true. That's really, really nice. grumbly and then I realized like, oh, this doesn't really change much unless you directly yep. choose to engage it. It's not often that an app does that. Be like, we're going <laughs> to put all this resources into making this thing, but you know, if, if you don't want it to bother you, it doesn't oh, Well, <laughs> let's not count on that being the case forever. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see how long that lasts. Right. If people don't use it, then they'll put it in the forefront. <laughs> yeah. So. You have to post one story a day to keep your account active. <laughs> yeah. So we shall see how that goes in the future. Okay, well, Suicide Squad, for those of you who don't know, is a movie set in the DC comic universe wherein a, s- a secret government agency recruits imprisoned supervillains to execute dangerous black ops missions in exchange for clemency. Um, as we record today, it has a Rotten Tomato score of 27%. So, and I personally, I haven't heard a single positive thing about this movie since I started hearing about it. Um, the fan score on the very same thing, however, is a much more generous 74%. Um, and there are even, have even been reports of online petitions circulating that are protesting again, again, bleh. there have even been reports online of petitions circulating that are protesting against sites like Rotten Tomatoes Boop. because of how they affect bots. Yeah, so lame. <laughs> with, riddled with spelling errors too. It's been really amusing. <laughs> Um, but protesting the effects that they have on box office results. So our initial plan for this podcast was to all go see Suicide Squad and discuss it today. But our, our initial plan, like changed. months ago, like we were all had some kind of anticipation for this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely interest from everybody involved. And, and um, but, uh, maybe this is just me, but from what I could tell with this group, before reviews came out, not only were we like planning on seeing it, but we're, I was really excited for this movie. Were y'all like really looking forward to it? So my interest in this movie has slowly gone down over time. When the first trailer came out, I was actually really pumped about it. Um, and as more trailers have, have come out and more people start talking about it, the lower my expectations have gotten until, yeah, week of when, you know, the embargo dropped on the reviews. At that point, I was just kind of like, I don't really want to see this movie anymore. <laughs> this movie is a really interesting kind of study in hype for me because Every trailer that I saw, I thought, this movie looks like, I don't, no part of this movie looks like something I'd be interested in. But every, so many people that I respect their opinion and, you know, 
film podcasters and reviewers and all this stuff and like really close friends are all like doesn't that look great and I was like well I do like the songs in the background like, maybe this will be good um and so just kind of like told myself like no you're thinking about this all wrong like this is gonna be good and I had gotten my point to a place where I was excited about it after initially seeing previews and being like yikes so it's been kind of a a roller coaster of hype in my own malleability and my opinions of stuff um, as this, you know, public opinion on this has swayed so much up and down. But, Sandra, I think you're right. I think we all, in the way we were talking oh, yeah. about it, we were all, like, planning on seeing it and really interested in seeing it. Yep. Um, but, yeah, our that was our initial plan for months, but we the conversation changed to one once these reviews started coming out, that was like, see it if you want, skip it if you don't, which I'm certain is a conversation that would not have happened if we had not heard such awful reviews. Um, so yeah, let's talk about it, guys. Uh, how do reviews affect whether or not you want to take something in? How does it affect your experience when you do choose to take it in? Um, maybe we should start off, first of all, by asking who in this group saw Suicide Squad, uh, who didn't, and if you saw it, what did you think? Yeah, so I decided to go see it. I um, had been really excited to see this movie. Like, every trailer that came out got me more excited. I loved the look of it through the trailers. Um, and when the reviews came out, I was really bummed. Um, the one saving grace for me was that a reviewer that I tend to really appreciate and agree with her opinions, Angie Han said on Twitter that she actually liked the film and had a fun time with it, even though she agreed it was pretty messy. Um, and so my curiosity got the best of me, and I decided to go see it opening night. Uh, I, I did see it as well, um, and I was kind of in a similar boat. I think the only trailer I saw was the first trailer, and I'm definitely hitting a point of superhero fatigue um, and DC fatigue, which I feel like if you watch half of Man of Steel, you'll immediately like have DC fatigue. Um, <laughs> but like the trailer was distinct enough and felt different enough from all these other films. And in particular, yeah, the art style um, that they kind of chose for a lot of the marketing for this film was just so like captivating for me and like distinct and new um, that I was really interested. The only characters I think that I recognized going in were Joker and uh, Harley Quinn. Um, so I didn't have much background at all. So it was kind of like, I was impressed with the marketing team that they got me interested in this whole team of people, considering that I only already knew a couple of the characters. Um, but yeah, so I went in, I kind of heard the reviews, but I, I was already like excited enough for it that I, um, that they lowered my expectations, but I still went in like feeling pretty optimistic about it. You know, this is not necessarily a good reason to see a movie. So I'm prefacing my statement with that, but, I loved the marketing for this movie so much that even though the reviews were bad, a small part of me wanted to see it to reward the good marketing, you know, because oh, wow. like, as, as like a marketing, as a person who works in marketing, I was so impressed and loved that marketing so much that I was like, man, like it did its job, even though these reviews are bad. I still like I'm so intrigued. Like I kind of felt compelled to buy a ticket for almost just that reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this was a movie that, as I said, was something that looked like I wasn't that interested in and then became interested in because of the public conversation and because of the marketing that uh, was put out. And ultimately, I decided that after hearing the reviews were so bad and the only opportunity for me to see it being in a 
very limited window in which I was spending time in California. I was like, I don't know that this is um, something that I want to spend two hours of this time away from home on. Um, it might be something that I catch when it's in a dollar theater or uh, out on video, but it's not something that I uh, ended up going to see for our conversation today. It just, because the reviews were so bad, it, it felt like it felt okay to miss it. Well, Sandra, since you and I saw it, let's uh, talk amongst ourselves just a bit about kind of our reactions to the film. And in the meantime, Lucas and Lawson um, can spend their time arranging knives in a very, like, poetic <laughs> circle around the floor, surrounded by <laughs> laptop screens and baby clothes. All right. Um, <laughs> Is that a suicide joke? Yeah. There's, yeah. A suicide Squad. Suicide, squad. suicide squad joke. <laughs> suicide joke. That's a suicide joke. That's a suicide squad joke. Um, so, I think you were re- reading one of Joker's tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> suicide joke. joke. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so normally, when it comes to like seeing a movie, like speaking of reviews and how like this movie that affected my viewing of this movie, I know like what the chatter is but I try to like go in thinking like look I'm gonna have my own experience and form my own opinion and the reviews like shouldn't matter in an extreme way and this is the one time where that really bit me in the ass because I with all my heart wish I would have trusted the reviewers and not seen this movie I yeah (laughs) I felt gross two minutes in and that feeling has not left me. I, I left the theater feeling gross. I woke up the next morning feeling gross for having seen this movie. Um, this Whoa. movie, like, treats women so, in such a disgusting way that I just really, really hate that I paid money to go see it. Um, I will say, yes, it's a mess. Um it's a bad movie because like the plot is all over the place and it's a bad script, but that's like not why I'm mad at it. Like there are plenty of messy movies that I've still had a fun time enjoying. And when I went into seeing this movie, that's kind of what I expected. I expected it to be a mess, but like, who cares? I might still have fun with it. Um, I didn't expect it to be so grossed out by it. I, the positive thing I have to say about this movie is that, Margot Robbie is a shining light in it. Every time, yeah, anytime she gets to say or do anything, I'm so captivated. I thought her performance was really, really great. Like, the trailer, like, how good she seems in the trailers totally pays off in this movie. Um, It made me so sad because... One of the things that is so frustrating about this movie is how much potential there is. Like, you have this really stellar cast, and you could have made such an amazing movie. You could have made such a just an amazing Harley Quinn movie. Like, you have the raw materials for it. Um, the visual aesthetics of the movie I tended to like. I feel like what's the cotton candy colors that we see in the trailer um, and in, throughout the marketing aren't really present throughout this movie, except in, like, the Harley Quinn character. But overall, visually, I had a good time. Um, But the treatment of women was just too much for me to handle. Yeah, I can absolutely empathize. Yeah, I I will say I was very surprised with how much fun I had with this movie. I think part of it was that, like, 
I went in with extremely low expectations based on the buzz. Part of it was I was just kind of in like a grumpy, cynical mood that night, just generally. And so I kind of like bought into the film's really cynical worldview, I think. Um, (laughs) But so when I think or talk about the film, what I should say is I'm kind of taking the approach of like, assume it's bad, like assume it's kind of a train wreck, but I want to talk about what I enjoyed about it. Because overall, like, I do think it's like pretty fundamentally flawed film um you know there have been stories about some of the editing drama behind it and how like there were different cuts and how there was a lot of studio involvement like in real time based on reactions to movies like batman vs superman and um deadpool um and you really that really bleeds through in this movie um like you can see that there were lots of different hands involved um i mean i do want to really quickly say about that editing even though i agree I think that the movie is better because of it. I think that if we had gotten, just from listening to what the rumors are, I think if we had gotten the original cut, it would have been a worse movie. But that's just my quick opinion. Agreed. Yeah, no, it does sound like some of the major changes that they made and some of the reshoots they did did make it more enjoyable overall. Uh, But there are just some strange ways where, like, this film kind of, it like it feels like it's missing some of the basic like building blocks of just like storytelling and pacing in terms of in we've seen so many superhero films that you want to avoid cliches but there are certain kind of orienting markers that you have to put in place to know like okay we are moving into act three or like okay this is an origin story and this film lacks a lot of those where at about the midway point or like so basically the first half of the film is like almost all set up and it's set up that's done in kind of a fun way but it's just very like overtly set up and then about halfway through there's like all of a sudden a record scratch where it's like okay and now we're moving towards the finale and it just kind of caught me off guard where for 20 minutes about 20 minutes I just like really couldn't tell like what was happening or where we were going just in terms of like the pace of the film so stuff like that really stands out as like oh if if we had had a clear vision for how this thing was going to go um Maybe you wouldn't have problems like that. There are some really hacky DC cameos that do kind of feel like inserted in in a universe building kind of way. Um, this is also a film that like it it tries to dance that line where it wants to go really dark, especially with Harley Quinn's character. It wants to take you to some even darker places than like the Nolan films went or than really any other DC films have gone. But it always just wants to like tiptoe on that line and then shy back so that it's not too dark. And I think it like wants to have its cake and eat it too in that way. Um, There's just lots of really painfully corny dialogue. Um, This has the same problem as I think Batman vs Superman did where they want to like raise interesting questions about morality and about like moral ambiguity. Um, But there's just it's like none of the characters can utter a single line that doesn't sound like pretty cliched or done before um and that was a huge problem in batman versus superman where it like wanted to have theological discussions but that mostly just consisted of lex Luthor saying things like god is dead or i've killed god or god walks among us um so i think this movie movie is similarly clunky where it's like it's dealing with interesting ambiguity in terms of um, people seen as society's villains who are now like going to be society's heroes but it just like it doesn't really know how to handle that um, you know what? You know what I just kind of thought of. Who would have knocked this movie out of the park is Matthew Vaughn. Like Matthew Vaughn has made movies like The Kingsman and Kickass, which are like these fun, colorful action films that are also oh, very yeah. like seedy and dark and like in graphic. And th- he would have like really done this story justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that does seem like a good match. Yeah, I agree. 
Um, Can I ask you guys uh, a point? Oh, sorry, Brandon. Well, yeah. So I was just going to say, Sandra, you talked about the visual style of this film, and I agree it does some some really distinct new things. Um, There's this character, the Enchantress, who is entirely new to me, um, who like is this witch that's been around for like millennia, who is like possessing the body of this white woman. And some of the like some of the style they use in terms of showing how the possession occurs is really like gripping and like eerie and spooky. Um, so I love that kind of stuff. Like Sandra was saying, even though you don't see a lot of the candy color, the opening titles and the closing credits are just like really electric and exciting. Um, uh, just a couple other things to this film, I think. Um, I was really impressed with the diversity of the cast, um, <laughs> and it's diverse in a way that doesn't feel necessarily like it's centered on white people. Um, I think in many cases, the Marvel films, even as they've started to kind of have more diverse casts, they can still feel like they're centered on white folks who have like racially diverse friends who kind of show up as sidekicks. Um, I think there are some interesting race dynamics here, and um, even if the film's only character of Asian descent is just really horribly underserved. Um, there's a moment near the end where, um, Will Smith playing Deadshot, Deadshot, is that his name? Yeah. There's some Deadpool, mm-hmm. Deadshot, who knows? Um, <clears throat> so there's a moment near the end where, um, a white character, um, like something good has happened and a white character like moves in to give Will Smith a hug and he just backs up and he's like, whoa, whoa, I'm not a hugger. And I think in other films or in other times, that would have just been a little character moment to show like, oh, Will Smith is still really hardened and he's still kind of reserved and withdrawn and doesn't want to hug. Um, But something about the way that like Will Smith says that line with a certain kind of authority, I don't know, maybe I was just giving this film way too much credit, but it definitely brought to mind for me conversations about like racial dynamics in the US and how a lot of white folks don't have respect for black bodies um, and kind of feel like... um, yeah, and kind of feel like um, if we want to hug somebody, we can hug somebody. And so in that moment when Will Smith's like, hey, hey, like, I'm not a hugger and you don't get to just choose that you're going to hug me. Um, it felt like it was kind of trying to play with some of those racial tensions. But again, maybe I'm giving this movie way too much credit. You know, um, Brent, with you bringing up. <laughs> that does feel like. Uh, well, <laughs> you know, Brent, I said earlier how the thing that like really left me feeling gross was the way women were treated. And that's what like was the, had the strongest impact on me, but I also felt really gross about, like, the way people of color were treated in this movie. There's some... I won't spoil what happens, but there are some, like, major things that happen, like, only to the characters of color that <laughs> is really frustrating, and I think also just very... Uh, it's just not good. I don't... This yeah. movie was bad. This is a bad... Like, <laughs> when I heard all these reviews, I kept thinking, like... This movie is bad as in that it's not well made or not well told. And I truly believe now, though, this is bad for humanity. This is a bad movie. It shouldn't exist. Uh. <laughs> um, uh, I like this. I like this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Sandra, I'll just this echo to what you said about great performances. Um, great ensemble performances. Absolutely. I really liked Jay Hernandez as Diablo, um, this character who can like shoot fire out of his hands um obviously will smith is somebody who can headline a movie in his headline mini but i think he works pretty well on this ensemble here totally he's still great and distinct but like it doesn't feel like he's trying to steal the scenes um and then like you said um margo is it robbie margo. or robbie oh i'm not sure i've always said robbie I think it's Margot Robbie. Yeah, Margot Robbie. She is phenomenal. I think in a better movie that this would be this would become like a classic um, comic book performance. Almost Absolutely. In the vein of like 
Keith Ledger as the Joker. Um, uh. but the, it's just some of it. I mean, her performance is great. The the writing really underserves her. There's just like one too many scenes that end with a little like Harley Quinn one liner. Um, but yeah, she's doing something really, I think she's doing something really subtle and nuanced in this film. You know, there's one moment. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead, Brian. Oh, well, there's one moment where Harley Quinn has gotten separated from the rest of the team. Um, and you see her like emotionally reacting to something that's happened. And it's just this like rare moment of kind of honesty and vulnerability on her part. And then the rest of the team like starts to walk up and approach her. And there's just like this kind of long shot where she sees them coming. And it's almost like just a subtle way that she shifts and shifts her facial expression. You just see her like getting back into persona as Harley Quinn. Um, and like the transformation you see on her face is like really amazing. And you can tell as the rest of the, the team is walking up that like they see it happen and they recognize like, Oh, she's getting back into character now, but there's almost this shared understanding among them of like, you know what? We've all been through some really awful stuff. And we get that sometimes the way you survive is like, you just create this version of yourself. That's okay for the world. Um, but I, and I, so I think moments like that really depend on like Margot Robbie being able to play all the different layers of this character. And she, yeah, she really knocks it out of the park. Yeah. I would so be down for an edited version of this movie that are, is just her scenes. Like if someone, once this movie comes out on iTunes, can like edit together a 15 or 20 minute film that is just the scenes that pertain to her, I would be really excited about that. Yeah, I'd be on board. So I wanted to ask you guys, because there's been so much, like you're talking about the behind the scenes editing drama and all of, um, there's just been a lot of stuff in the news about this film being made. Uh, a lot of that has centered around Jared Leto as the Joker. Um, what did you guys think of his performance in this? I know you guys both very pronouncedly picked Heath Ledger uh, as your preference, but um, what what did you feel like that film, or that performance brought to this film or took away from it i thought it was i thought it was fine yeah I, ahead, it, no Brent, i was gonna say the exact same thing it was fine <laughs> like not bad not particularly impressive he's not in it for very much and so it's just fine he does a good creepy laugh like and that's uh, it's i think the look of the i really yeah. loved the look of the joker in this movie um yeah i think jared leto as an actor is kind of a creep and i don't appreciate him as a human being um but his performance is just fine like nothing impressive about it yeah it kind of feels like so best all case that scenario. method stuff didn't pay off no that method stuff <laughs> is method. really dumb yeah it's, an ex- it's just an excuse for him to be a douche yes. <laughs> yeah it feels like best case scenario where obviously he's following up this like really iconic performance from heath ledger and I think if he had, like, tried to do something really bizarre and distinct to, like, be the new iconic Joker, like, that would have flopped. But he's interesting enough. Like Sanders said, he's, like, he's convincingly creepy as a character who's supposed to be creepy. This Joker is, a, is strangely enough, like, he's a, he is a lot darker than Heath Ledger's Joker. Like, there's just a certain edge to him where you get the sense that he could do stuff a lot more vile than we ever even saw Heath Ledger do. Um, but, yeah, I just think, like, it's forgettable in a way that's fine. Like this will not be an iconic performance, but he does a great job. So cool. Um, well, I kind of want to take it away from suicide squad and move more to just kind of back it up to kind of what we talked about, about the effects of sure reviews. Thing. Um, so obviously we talked about our, our 
the effect that reviews had going into this movie um, and our decisions to watch or not watch it. (laughs) Um, But how do you guys normally view reviews? Do you read them before the movie? Do you, you know, look at IMDb reviews? Do you look at Rotten Tomatoes? Listen to podcast episodes. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I don't, um, I do not seek them out. I try to avoid them and I try to only listen to reviews afterwards. But what's amazing is being on any form of social media, it's become almost impossible to avoid. Like I never looked for a single review of Suicide Squad, but somehow through osmosis, it, I knew that it, people didn't like it and that it wasn't doing well. And I think a lot of that has to do with who we follow on Twitter and things sure. like that. Just how our, That's, how our, how our culture works and how really our, brand of people <laughs> that's true we talked about that a little bit when uh, we talked about the politics podcast and stuff mm-hmm. like it can become a little bit of an echo chamber but um but yeah it's it's weird I, I don't seek those out um beforehand normally but i do usually end up kind of knowing a little bit of buzz one way or the other i think for me it depends on what my interest level is in the film or tv show so like if it, if it's something i know i want to see i'll try to avoid reviews until after i've seen the particular piece of content and then read reviews later to see how like my thoughts lined up with these reviewers um however mm-hmm. if it's something like a big tentpole film that i'm not interested in i might read reviews just so to get a feel of like what that movie is like and about without having to actually go see it yeah in my mind there there's like a big distinction for me between like buzz and reviews where totally um i will there's usually like only very specific reviewers that i'll read um you know i like i follow a few film critics on twitter who like tend to rail against sites like rotten tomatoes because they say like if you really want to like the purpose of film criticism is to in some cases like help you decide should i spend money on this thing in some cases like help you process what you've seen and think about like what did i like and what didn't i like and what did this movie mean for me and also like more broadly what did it mean um and so that's something that you're just going to have to get from like a critic that you have a relationship with somebody that you know in general what they think about a lot of films um and you know like when you agree with them and when you disagree with them um and that's just something you can't get from like a number on rotten tomatoes so yeah there are a few film critics that i like follow that i'll read their stuff um and reviews generally are not going to affect like whether i'm interested in a film or not um like just because yeah like y'all were saying i tend to read them after i've watched the film because i want to like experience it on my own terms um buzz on the other hand can really affect whether i want to see something or not Um, yeah for sure in particular like there are lots of films that, like, as soon as they announce it, I know I'm going to be there on opening weekend. No, Even if the buzz is awful, um, I just know there's something about it that's, like, interesting enough to me that I'm going to be there. Or I feel enough loyalty to the brand or whatever it is. Like, we had a new uh, trailer for Dunkirk this week, the new Nolan film. Mm-hmm. And that's a movie where, yep. like, even if it gets a 10% on Rotten Tomatoes and the buzz is on it, <laughs> like, I will be there opening weekend yep. because I want to see the new Nolan sure. film. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of films where it's, like, maybe a franchise that I don't feel a ton of loyalty towards. Um, or like a story I don't know much about where if the buzz is like just really surprisingly positive or surprisingly negative, like that may well determine whether I go fork out money for that or not. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, for me, I follow certain people on Twitter that their, their opinions 
will probably mirror right. mine. And so those are the people that I trust with, you know, with what they say about movies and stuff like that. Um, and I, I, I kind of want to dive in on Rotten Tomatoes real quick on how Rotten Tomatoes works. Basically, if you like the film, you give it a thumbs up. If you don't like the film, you give it a thumbs down. And Suicide Squad getting 27% on Rotten Tomatoes means 27% of the people gave it a thumbs up. That's it. It doesn't mean like everyone thought it was like a two or I guess a a 2.7. We should also point out that there's a critic score and a fan score. So that 27% is critics giving it a thumbs up or thumbs down Yes. um, versus what regular moviegoers think. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, the fans exactly. score on it was seventy four percent. Yeah, much higher. And I mean, for me, I, I I tend to, I mean, I I'll look at a Rotten Tomato score, and I only look at the critic score. I do not look right. at the fan score. Uh, it's kind of same same with IMDb. The fan scores are ridiculous, and the fact that people are able to submit reviews before a film's even out um, from fans, I think is pretty ridiculous. But I, I'll, I'll look at it, but I won't, I won't read a review. I won't, um, listen to a podcast about it. Um, unless it's something that I know I'm absolutely never going to see. Um, then I'll look into it. I'll, you know, for me, that's usually like a horror Mm -hmm. movie. I'll listen to a podcast about a horror movie that I know will never (laughs) be seen by me. Um, but if there's a chance, even a slight chance in the future, I'm going to see it. I will, I'll, I'll skip it until, until I've seen it. You know, and interesting. Well, that's pretty similar to how I feel about movie reviews in general. If I have no plan in seeing it, but I know that people have, you know, are talking about it, I'll listen to the review. And I've been convinced to see a movie based on that. Like I had no interest in seeing the Babadook, and then I listened to all of a review about yeah. it, and I was like, oh, I think I might actually watch that. And then I watched it, and I enjoyed it. But I try to avoid. I try to stay as objective as possible because I know how malleable my opinions are like (laughs) if i go in reading this stuff i'll be like well i'm supposed to hate this so (laughs) i just i know that that does work on me as much as i don't want it to so brent you talked about like and all of us have kind of mentioned that we tend to read or listen to reviews after we've seen a a film if it's something that we are interested in seeing um so Mm -hmm. how do y'all feel what do reviews do for us um, in that after seeing something space? Um, like, what? For, why do we seek these reviews out? For me, definitely, it helps me process the movie. I try to listen to like the podcast or read the review that I've been. I usually save them <laughs> if I see if I see somebody wrote something that I really am interested in, or you know, there's a podcast out. I save it, and right after I watch the movie, I try to listen to it. Just help me process it. Um, and just to hear, I, I, after I, after I consume some piece of media, I really want to discuss it or hear what other people think about it. Um, and for me, that's the perfect time. Can I just pause to talk about how meta this is right now? <laughs> Us talking about listening to podcasts on our own podcast. Um, about reviews. Yeah. My experience yeah. of reviews is similar where, I mean, part of it is that like, I see either I'll see a lot of films by myself or I'll see films with like one or two friends. Um, but so often when I come out of a movie, like all I want to do is talk about it and hear what other people think and kind of process my own thoughts. So reviews and podcasts are a great space to do that where you can have a conversation with other people. I mean, a sort of conversation, even if nobody like none of your actual physical friends around you are talking about this thing, it's a way to like geek out about it for a while. Um, and then I do think, yeah, reading reviews, especially from certain reviewers, um, whose voices I've come to really kind of understand and I, I know how they tend to experience films. Um, 
it does kind of help me distinguish my own views on a film where if they if they just like rave about an actor's performance um, and I'm just sitting there like disagreeing with every line, then it kind of helps me clarify like, okay, like I did not enjoy that actor's performance in the way this person did. Or in some cases, like they I mean, I think really effective reviews can also um, sort of subtly shift my opinion on film on films where if I like come out of a film thinking like, ah, oh, this thing, this particular piece was really poorly done. And then I have a review that will just, um, that will talk about that element in a way that I hadn't considered, or maybe a way that's like a lot more informed than my perspective. They can kind of talk me into like appreciating something more than I did the first time around. Yeah. Reviews have kind of been for me, uh, a sort of like, low rate way of like getting a film education you know there have been so many times when i've seen a movie that Mm -hmm. i've been like dissatisfied with and i can't really pinpoint why i'm dissatisfied and then i'll read a review that will say like yeah this is a not well-crafted movie because of these reasons and it will uh, like put out what the storytelling flaws are you know it was poorly paced Mm -hmm. or they didn't introduce this character well or and it's really helped me learn what makes a good movie um yeah Mm -hmm. i also want to bring back the conversation really quickly to rotten tomatoes um you know all these like dc fanboys are, are rallying against rotten tomatoes because they didn't get their way this one time and that is i think really <laughs> a lame reason to rally against it however i for very different reasons also have a lot of issues with rotten tomatoes as a system um i don't i think film as an art form shouldn't be reduced to a percentage number of whether mm. people like it or don't i think there are so many movies that have touched me in such important ways and maybe in small ways, maybe just like a particular scene did a lot for me, even if the movie as a whole didn't. And so I'm glad that I got to see those movies for those reasons. And just because something might have like a 60% on Rotten Tomatoes doesn't mean it's a movie that it can still be very valuable to see. Um, I don't want to fill my artistic life with only movies that are rated like 90% or above, you know? Um, And I I feel like a lot of friends and people that don't have reviewers, like, I think like a lot of us have said that we have critics whose opinions we trust because we've followed them for years and we like know that their opinions often line up with our own. Um, And so people who don't have those kind of relationships with critics tend to just go to Rotten Tomatoes to like make all their decisions about whether mm-hmm. they see something or not. And I don't think that's very healthy if you want to have like a rich film life. Yeah, I completely agree. I think um, there are several that I listen to. The one that I feel like I have the most pronounced connection with and like understand everyone's taste on the show and the ways in which they align and misalign with my taste um, is the Slash Film Cast. Um, I usually listen to that um, with any film that is like a big temple. I'm interested in the host's take on that. Um, and in particular, I remember, and this goes back a little bit to uh, what we talked about with wanting to talk to people and geek out about stuff. Whenever like Civil War, for example, came out, I remember going and listening to that review the second it came out. And I think I listened to that review four times. And that was because... I loved that movie so much, I didn't want it to be over, and I didn't want the experience of being excited about that movie to be over. And so just continuing to be able to listen to people 
be excited about it and make it part of the conversation. Like, I probably just should have gone and seen it in theaters. Or you should have listened <laughs> actually... to our episode about Civil War four times because... Oh, I... <laughs> what you may have done. <laughs> no, uh, you guys, I do not... There's no dignity in how many times I re-listen to our episodes. <laughs> so I'm just not going to get into that. Um, but... Yeah, it was, it's, oh my gosh, I was so excited on the flight out to California, Civil War was playing on the plane, and I was like, yes, I wanted to see this again, but I didn't want to spend 13 more dollars, this is great. Um, but being able to keep that conversation going, um, and like you're saying, think about and analyze and get kind of that, you know, poor man's film education. If you love a movie, if you're on the fence about a movie, being able to turn that, you know, hour and a half, two hours into uh multiple hours of enriching your life and enriching your experience and connecting with other people. Um, it's just great. And so I think rotten, where Rotten Tomatoes fails in just turning things into a movie or into a, a number, um, movie reviews and movie podcasts can succeed in turning uh, this piece of art that took years and years to put together but ultimately could end up just being a couple hours in somebody's life into a much longer and more meaningful part of their life. What I will say about Rotten Tomatoes kind of in its defense, Rotten Tomatoes and also just general buzz is that I think Rotten Tomatoes helps me in a lot of cases helps me like establish the posture that I'm going to have when I go into a film. Mm -hmm. Um, Partially by not just the number, but even like the way that they'll just grab single lines from so many different reviews um, where like, I would guess each of those critics are like, I said so much, I had so much more to say about this film and you just took the one-liner. But when you read sites like Rotten Tomatoes or just see what people are tweeting, I think it can help you like know, I mean, yeah, it can help you set expectations. So my ideal film circumstances are like, I'm going to go in and I'm just going to completely like submit to the movie. And for two hours, I'm just going to like buy in completely and like go for a ride. Um, and like when I go into a film knowing that it's getting amazing reviews, I can just completely surrender to it in that way. But when I hear that a movie like Suicide Squad is getting really negative reviews, I know that if I just completely surrender to it in that way, like I'm going to have a bad experience. I'm going to feel let down by the movie. I'm going to feel really frustrated and like underserved. And so to hear the buzz, that's basically like, you know what? Like there's a lot of fundamental flaws, but like there are a couple of great performances, um, and a couple of great moments, then I can just go in with kind of a much more, um, like, I don't know, a much less gullible attitude kind of going and knowing like, all right, I'm not going to expect this movie to wow me, but I'm going to mostly pay close attention to like the way people are performing and the way the movie does X, Y, and Z. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, I think even for Suicide Squad, that's why I was able to have a better experience than I would have is that I kind of went in, um, not expecting to be like moved and shaken by it. So basically what we're saying is for your film life, gather people around you who have similar opinions that you can trust to lead you in the right direction. And for your real life, gather people around you with different opinions so that you can learn and find your own direction. I think that's a great summary. Yeah, I think I think that's a really good thing to live your life by. Guys, we need a very long t-shirt. <laughs> the other thing I'll say too is just for a movie like Suicide Squad, I just like... There's, I see this like trend in our, I think it's, I don't necessarily think it's just our generation, but like with things like the Marvel Cinematic Universe or the DC Cinematic Universe or just all these other reboots, there's like, I sense a certain kind of almost weariness in terms of all of us. It it just seems like sometimes there's an inevitability that they're going to make these movies and we're going to go see them and we're going to have problems. And there's just like, 
if this is not something that has already occurred to you, like, there's so much freedom in saying, like, I don't have to see the next Marvel movie, or, like, I don't have to see the next part four of this franchise or something. Even if everybody on Twitter is talking about it and hating it or loving it or anything, like, I can just choose to not be part of that conversation, and next week there will be another conversation that I can be part of. So I remember even, like, when we started tweeting or texting about Suicide Squad and people were, like, going to drop out, there was just a certain amount of freedom of, like, oh, this is a film that we've been anticipating for months and planning to talk about, and this week we decided we don't want to spend two hours on it, or some of us did, and that's totally okay. Like, we can choose another conversation to engage in. So live your life. Just live your life. <laughs> yeah. Don't let Marvel tell you how to live your life. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you guys so much. It has been a blast talking through everything. As always, really enjoy getting to spend the time with you guys this morning and appreciate everyone out there listening. Um, let's go around the table and let people know where we can find us online. Brent? Uh, you can find me on most social media platforms, uh, including Instasnap or Inst- Snapagram or whatever they're calling it, uh, under the handle <laughs> B-R-P-A-B-A. I'm Sandra Amstutz, and you can find me on all social platforms at Sandra Amstutz. My last name is spelled A-M-S-T-U-T-Z. I'm Lucas Wright. You can find me at Lucas and Stuff on Twitter. Um, check me out. <laughs> I'm Lawson. You can find me at Lawson West on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, thanks for listening, guys. We'll talk to you more next week. Goodbye. Adios. Bye-bye. Thank you. Goodbye now. Goodbye. Go away. I'll see you soon, okay? That's it. Go home. Yep. Moving along, Padre. Goodbye, old friend. That's it. That's our show for tonight, people.